Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. Let's read this together. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on the tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appropriate time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Our God and Father, even as we are excited and eager to return to our regular gathered assemblies once again, we ask you to now tune our hearts and minds appropriately. Bring into our hearts a sobriety as we approach your word. Lord, this morning we are confronted with weighty realities, the presence of evil in our world and what you plan to do with it. We dare not approach your word or wrestle with your revelation flippantly. And in this spirit of sober contemplation, we turn our hearts to the family and friends of George Floyd, and we ask that you would comfort them. Come to them, Lord Jesus, as the gentle and lowly Savior you are, and bring them into your loving heart. Lord Jesus, we also ask that you would heal the city of Minneapolis and the many other cities which have been ravished by pain and rage. Lord, we decry sin and its effects. We decry injustice and cruelty. Oh God, we are a confused people, a country that believes the answer to injustice is more injustice. We are a people that believe that the answer to a police officer killing an unarmed man is a horrifying and wicked action and sentiment, like saying that the only good cop is a dead cop. Oh God, help us. Lord, we have seen what our best efforts can do, and it looks like cities being reduced to ash. We need you. As your people, we come to your word now because we know that going anywhere else is futile. So speak to your people now, for we, your servants, are listening. We desire to do what you want us to do. So do your desire in our midst through your word for our good and to your glory, O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I'd like to read some, some passages of scripture and juxtapose their teaching with some observations about our world. Ephesians 1.11 tells us that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. In Isaiah 45.7, God says, I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And in Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, God says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. In Psalm 115, Verse 3 says that our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And between 1941 and 1945, around 6 million Jews were systematically rounded up and murdered by the Nazis and their allies. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And over the course of the 20th century, under the Marxist-Communist regimes of Lenin, Stalin, and Mao, upward of 100 million people were murdered. 
Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And nearly 60 million preborn babies have been murdered in the U.S. since 1973 when abortion became legal. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And on September 11, 2001, terrorists hijacked two commercial airplanes and crashed them into the World Trade Center, killing nearly 3,000 people. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And many of us watched a man named George Floyd deny the dignity of human treatment struggling for air for eight minutes under a Minneapolis police officer's knee as his life was slowly snuffed out of him. Many of us saw that this week. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases, and cities across the nations are are being burned to ash in hurt reactions with unfettered rage. A picture of what it looks like when man tries to take vengeance into his own hands. And obviously, it's not difficult to cite more and more examples. So what are we to make of this stark reality? We cannot deny that on the one hand, the Bible teaches that God is exhaustively sovereign over this planet. Neither the goings-on of nature nor the decisions of man thwart his purposes or overturn his sovereignty. He rules over all. And yet... Real evil happens here. Real evil has happened to people in our own church. Brothers and sisters, I know your stories. And many of you have lived through and walked out of the depths of humanity's darkest expressions of sin. You've experienced evil in pure and concentrated form. How can a just and holy God, a God who is unstained by the defilement of sin and wickedness, how can that kind of God sovereignly rule over a world in which it looks like evil tyrannizes? How is it possible for God to write the whole story of human history, a story marked by unimaginable sin, yet in such a way as the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it, so as thereby neither is God the author of sin? How can he, in one sense, author a story with sin in it, while in another sense, he is not himself the author of sin? How do we reconcile these things? How do we reconcile God's sovereignty and goodness and holiness with the kind of world in which we live? And that question is what philosophers and theologians have called theodicy, that is, the problem of evil. The most natural thing in the world is for us to reason along these lines. Evil must disprove the existence of a good God, right? Because since the world is evil, if there is a God, he is either good and too weak to stop evil, so therefore not God, or strong and therefore to blame to evil and therefore not good. This is, this is the problem of evil. It's the dilemma we describe when we use the word theodicy. And it's this dilemma that the prophet Habakkuk forces us to consider. Now, let me just say, we will see a resolution to this problem. But we'll see that the resolution to the problem comes when we accept God's invitation to rest in his unchanging, perfect, trustworthy character. But before we get there, let's face the problem Together. The prophet Habakkuk is another mysterious figure for us in the sense that we don't know anything about him besides what we can learn from this book. But we learn a lot about his temperament from this book because it reads very differently from the rest of the prophets. It's it's less like a bold, it's less of a bold, direct prophetic oracle against the people, and it's more like a private and intimate conversation between Habakkuk and God. It's like a journal discussion between, or, or private letters passed back and forth between Habakkuk and the Lord. The book is neatly divided up into three sections. So you have two cycles of dialogue between the prophet and God, and then the third section is the concluding prayer. So you have The prophet's complaint, God's answer, 
the prophet's second complaint, God's second answer, and then the resolution prayer at the end. And what we can determine from, from the contents of this book is that Habakkuk was ministering somewhere between 612 BC and 598 BC, which is to say that this, this prophecy is happening sometime after Babylon had become to rise, uh, had begun to rise as a world superpower. So, so Habakkuk knew who they were, right? They, they were beginning to develop a reputation, but it was before Babylon captures Jerusalem. And most scholars, in fact, date Habakkuk as being written specifically between 608 and 605 BC, which is really interesting because it would have put him under the reign of Judah's king Jehoiakim. And, and the reason this is interesting is because not, uh, not long before this, Judah had just experienced one of its high points of national history during the reign of his father, Josiah. So Josiah was the, the great king of Judah. He was the last great king of Judah. And not unlike the story that we heard in our series through Nehemiah a couple years back, Josiah led the people into reform after discovering the law of God, which had been lost for centuries. So he, he begins to, to restore the, the ramshackled and disused temple of God. And in doing so, he found the law recognized the contrast between how the nation was behaving and what God had instructed the nation to do. And so he led the people into reform. So he tore down the idols and the high places and he outlawed sorcery and idolatry and he led the people into formal worship of Yahweh. So during the reign of Josiah, there would have been expectation for for lasting reformation, it looked like God was coming through to restore the people once again back to their original stature. However, these external reforms came too late in the nation's rebellion and they didn't stick, right? They couldn't take root into the people's heart. And so Josiah was succeeded by his son Jehoahaz, whose three-month reign of wickedness was cut short when he was taken hostage to Egypt. And so then Jehoahaz, his brother, uh, Jehoahaz was succeeded by his brother Jehoiakim, who is described in scripture as doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. And so this is the time that Habakkuk was, was ministering. It was, he was ministering in the reign of Jehoiakim. Habakkuk had just lived through one of Judah's highest points of uh, as a nation under the reign of Josiah. And he thinks that things are moving forward. But as soon as Josiah dies, the nation takes a nosedive into idolatry and violence. And so Habakkuk is feeling this whiplash of what appeared to be a true restoration back into idolatry. And this internal national chaos is what occasions Habakkuk's first complaint to God in verse 2 of chapter 1 he says oh lord how long shall i cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save right habakkuk is looking at the chaos in his nation and he interprets the violence and the iniquity and the destruction and strife and rising contention and lack of justice he interprets all of that as the ineffectiveness of god's law he says the law is paralyzed, it's powerless, it can't do anything, right? His reasoning is straightforward. He's saying, if God were actively involved in the affairs of Judah, surely justice would reign and the righteous would not be surrounded and overwhelmed by the wicked, verse four. But they are, so therefore God's law must be powerless, right? God must be idle, he must be sitting on his hands. And God's first response to Habakkuk comes in chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, and it is jarring, to say the least. Because not only does he assure Habakkuk that his sovereign oversight has not slackened, and that the evil surrounding Judah is therefore no legitimate indication that he has grown idle, he goes even further to say that the evil which exasperates Habakkuk has arrived on divine purpose 
and that it is tame compared to what is coming. Saying, you think that's bad? Wait and see what happens next. See, says Yahweh in verse 5, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. He's saying, I'm going to tell you something that you wouldn't believe if told by anyone but me. The Chaldeans, that is the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation are coming. It's, and it's not merely, notice this, it's not merely that Yahweh is simply observing the arrival of the Babylonians and that he's announcing it to Habakkuk. Oh, by the way, I can see into the future and the Babylonians are coming. And it's not even that he allows for the Babylonians to come. But more directly, Yahweh assures the prophet that he himself is, quote, raising up the Chaldeans. They are his instrument. So contra Habakkuk's first assumption, God is not unaware of how bad things are. In fact, he is about to make them a lot worse. Now, the fact that God intends to judge his people is no conceptual problem for Habakkuk. It's no, it's no stretch to say even that Habakkuk wants God to discipline his people. But what makes this message particularly scandalous is the fact that God's instrument in this case is a people who are wicked and ruthless. Verse 7, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. In other words, they throw away their justice. They discard their dignity. They don't care. God is about to judge his people, and he's about to swallow opposing nations whole, like Nineveh, which we saw two weeks ago from the prophet Nahum. He's about to do all of this for their persistent wickedness. And yet the people that he sovereignly raises up for this purpose are themselves unparalleled in their indignity, injustice, and violent practices. The thing that occasioned Nahum's celebration, the Babylonians coming, is the thing that occasions Habakkuk's terror. The Babylonians are coming. He says that he is doing this. Now this, guys, if this doesn't seem crazy for you, just, just let me illustrate like this. This would be like if God were to say, America, I am about to discipline you. And the instrument that I am raising up for this purpose is ISIS. So you see the, the, the terror Right? The, the cure seems deadlier than the sickness. And so now we come to the second cycle of dialogue. The second cycle of dialogue begins in chapter 1, verse 12, with a baffled Habakkuk voicing his objection. Surely Habakkuk wonders in prayer. The Holy One of Israel cannot do such a thing, since he is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, verse 13 tells us. Right? The disproportion strikes Habakkuk as incompatible with God's holiness. He says, why do you look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he? In verse 13, he's saying, you can't do this, God. It's unbecoming of you. They are more wicked than we are. You can't use them to discipline us. And, and then Habakkuk begins to accuse Babylon before God. He, get, he begins to build a case so that, so that God can be persuaded not to use the Babylonians. Right? So, so this is how he, he reasons this. He says, if people, the Lord's creation, the inhabitants with which he has populated the earth, if people are like fish in the sea, that's the image in verse 14, then the wicked one, that is the Babylonians, Babylon, the wicked one, is like a sadistic fisherman who empties the waters of fish not for any purpose other than just to watch them die. Right, so verse 15, he brings all of them out, all the fish, all, all of God's creation, he brings all of them out and he, with his net and he gathers them into his dragnet so he rejoices and is glad. Is he, demands Habakkuk in verse 16, to keep emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? 
he is in effect saying that Babylon has proven to be an unrighteous people on a well-established trajectory of wickedness and is therefore an unseemly instrument for God's disciplinary purposes. He says, you can't do this, God. He then concludes his prayer with resolute confidence in the legitimacy of his objection. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So there is Habakkuk with his arms crossed and his foot tapping. I'm waiting, God. What, what answer do you have for me? Verse two, and the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on the tablets so that he may run who reads it. Saying, write this nice and big so that it's clear. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not delay. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God assures Habakkuk that he means what he says. This is going to happen, Habakkuk. And God is going to to assure him that he's going to bring everything to rights. But he tells Habakkuk that this will not come at the time or in the manner that Habakkuk would choose or expect. Now, from the apparent harshness of the first response, we might assume that God is about to knock Habakkuk over with a rough rebuke, but he doesn't. He encourages Habakkuk and exhorts him to remain faithful. And this shouldn't surprise us, brothers and sisters, because the sovereign Lord of history is a loving father. He loves his kids. So he says to one of his kids, Habakkuk, he says, behold, his soul, that is the wicked one. So Babylon here, he says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. He is in effect saying, I know Habakkuk, I know, I know. I know how wicked they are. I know that all of this seems so confusing to you, right? That I would that I would have purposes for ordaining such evil. But listen, Habakkuk, your responsibility is to live by faith. Now, this is the central resolution for this whole book. The righteous shall live by faith. In a world in which all hell is breaking loose, and it seems like everything is out of control, the righteous shall live by his faith. This is the central charge and it's placed within the overarching context of chaos. The encouragement is for Habakkuk to continue to trust in God in the midst of the utter chaos that surrounds him. Continue to trust in God. And then God supplies the rationale for this kind of faith and his promises to rectify all evil. Right, so in chapter 2, verses 6 through 20, God utters five woes of judgment. He is giving Habakkuk good reason to live by faith. Now, scholars are divided uh, in this section about whether whether some or all of these woes should be seen as directed toward the wickedness of Judah or the wickedness of Babylon or both. But I actually believe that the ambiguity here is intentional. In other words, God wants to comfort Habakkuk with descriptions of his work, right? These are characteristic descriptions of what God does. He is this kind of God. He's the kind of God who utters judgment and woe to all wicked people across all time and space. God ties up all loose ends, which means that these woes are universally applicable to all. So he utters woe in verses six through eight to him who heaps up what is not his own. Right, The one who greedily and hastily accumulates wealth and possession at the cost of others. He utters woe to those who pridefully fight and scrape to cheat to get up to a high point of self-security in verses 9 through 11. And he assures such people that their security is false. Right, They think they are safe, but it's all about to come crushing down. The Lord himself will see to it that it does. 
He utters woe to the one who builds a city with blood in chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. Right? The one who establishes his throne in violence, as the Proverbs tell us. That person, God assures, will be judged, and their judgment will bring about the glory of God. He says in verse 14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Right? They will become a spectacle, showcasing the righteousness of God as he judges them for all the world to see. And his reputation will therefore cover this planet. He utters woe to the person who exercises cruelty and shames his neighbor and forces them to drink from the cup of his wrath in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Such a person or nation or kingdom will have the tables turned on them and will likewise experience the shame of the Lord. They will drink the cup of his wrath. And he utters woe finally in chapter 2, verses 18 through 20 to the idolater. He utters woe to the one who passes up worship of the creator for worship of the creature. The fool who casts all his hopes on the created thing to to save them. The fool who, who trusts in creatures to save them will have all of their hopes dashed to pieces. And in all of this, brothers and sisters, in all of this, God is assuring Habakkuk that despite what it may look like for the time being, God will let no evil go unpunished. As chaotic as the world may seem for Habakkuk from the vantage point of being in history, right, it, looks, it looks crazy, it looks like everything is out of control, God is still on the throne. He's not subject to the frantic chaos that we feel. Right? So all around us is chaos, Verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Judah is about to be disciplined by Babylon. And Habakkuk thinks this unfair because Babylon is itself wicked. And so now God assures him that Babylon won't be let off the hook either for its evil because no one will be let off the hook for their evil. The righteous can live by faith in God in the midst of all the evil of this world because this is the kind of God that will, in the end, administer justice to all evil everywhere to the result that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so chapter 3 concludes with Habakkuk's resolution prayer. He, He reminds himself in this prayer of all God's faithfulness in the past. And he reminds himself of God's attributes and his trustworthiness. And yes, he confesses in verse 16 his own terror of what he and his people are about to endure. My legs are shaking. I'm terrified for what's about to come. But he nevertheless resolves to entrust himself to the care and providence of his God. And so verse 17, we read, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off and the fold, uh, f- from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. And he makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high places. Now, forgive me for pointing out the obvious, but nothing has happened to change Habakkuk's circumstances here. Judah is still plunging into idolatry. And Babylon is still coming. None of the things that occasioned Habakkuk's complaints in the beginning of this book have changed. It's all still happening. And yet, Habakkuk's hope and security is bound up in the unchanging character of God, a God he can trust. He has been reminded that the God he serves is 
merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's been reminded that the God that is sovereignly writing human history is trustworthy. He's been reminded that this God will write a better story, a more just story, a more beautiful story than Habakkuk could ever write. Now, what does all of this mean for for the problem of evil that I introduced at the beginning of this sermon? Well, for one, it highlights the fact that, much to the chagrin of many a skeptic, the problem of evil is not an intellectual problem. It's an emotional problem. Right? Habakkuk received no new intellectual key to resolve the problem of evil. The problem of evil was resolved when Habakkuk was reminded of what kind of God he worshipped. And this makes sense on a, on a certain level because intellectually, the problem of evil actually destroys itself. Right? So once you object to the existence of a good God on account of the existence of, of evil... You have erased the category of evil altogether. So if there is a God at all, he himself is the ultimate standard for good and evil. And if there isn't a God, there is no ultimate standard for good and evil. So evil can't disprove the existence of God because it's nothing. Good and evil become completely arbitrary. The difference between good and evil simply becomes your own preference, which hardly, hardly qualifies for a criteria to judge anyone's actions morally. Right? Another way to say this is that the problem of evil only exists for Christians. One pastor apologist puts it like this. I love how he puts it. He says, with Christianity, you get the problem of evil. With atheism, you get evil, no problem. Right? With Christianity, you get the problem of evil. With atheism, you get evil, no problem. Right? If there is no God, it's all just matter in motion. And matter in motion is amoral. There is no such thing as evil in a materialist universe. For evil to exist at all, there has to be an ultimate standard by which good and evil is judged, and that is God. And so the problem of evil isn't an intellectual problem, it's an emotional problem. God himself is the standard, he is goodness, and anything that deviates from his character is that which is evil. But this this doesn't make it any less real. Right? We, we are irreducibly emotional creatures, which means that the fact that the problem of evil is an emotional problem and not an intellectual one doesn't imply anything about its potency. The problem of evil is nevertheless real and it's strong. And like every other emotional problem, it is resolved on the personal emotional level. Right, so the answer to the problem of evil must work its way into our hearts in order for it to be resolved. It can't be resolved any way otherwise. So question, why has God ordained evil in this world? That's the problem of evil. Here's the solution. Answer, so that he could crush it and thereby glorify himself. Why has God ordained evil in this world? Answer, so that he could crush it and thereby, by crushing it, glorify himself. Now that answer will only bring you comfort if God and his glory is the chiefest desire of your soul. It will only bring you comfort to know that God ordains and, to, uh, and defeats evil for his glory. That will only bring you comfort if his glory is what you most want. Right, The resolution to entrust ourselves and, and our future over to the, to the good and providence, uh, providential care of God, that sort of resolution will only come when we come to agree with Him that the greatest of all possible goods is His glory. Once that is granted, we will be free to trust Him with all sorts of circumstances because we have this promise that even those circumstances will contribute to his glory somehow, right? He works all things out for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purposes, right? So, so, so we can come to, once we come to agree with God that his glory is the, the greatest and chiefest good, we will be able to say things like, as long as you are glorified, Lord, I am content with whatever you bring me. 
I don't want it. I don't want the pain, just like Habakkuk. I don't want it. I'm shaking. I'm terrified. And yet, as long as it brings you glory, I'm content with whatever you bring me through. How does that happen? How does that kind of adoration for God and his glory happen? It happens when you come to recognize the worth of God's glory at the foot of the cross. You see, the problem of evil is actually much worse than any of us realize at first. The, pr- the real problem of evil is not how can a good God sovereignly ordain for evil things to happen to good people. That's not the problem of evil. The problem of evil is rather, how can a good God not bring about calamity to all people for all time, forever and ever, since no one is good and everyone is evil? The problem of evil is the problem of sin, and the problem of sin is universal. And the problem of sin is what is addressed at the cross of Christ. At the cross of Christ, friends, God's infinite mercy and infinite justice Embrace. For those of us who fly to him by faith, trusting in his work alone, Christ receives the woes that our sin earn so that we can receive his righteousness. And this is what it means for the righteous to live by faith. Right? Habakkuk was to live by faith in a God who would deal with the problem of evil in some way. Right? That way that God would deal with the problem of evil was 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 for Habakkuk a hazy and blurry future, right? He didn't know how God would do it. He didn't know how God would come through. But by faith, he trusted that God would do it. He trusted that despite all the craziness that, that, that seemed to indicate the op- opposite, God would come through for his people. He would come through to deal with the problem of evil and the problem of sin. Habakkuk knew that God would do it, but the picture of how that would happen was a hazy and blurry picture. He didn't know exactly what that meant, but the resolution of that picture begins to to sharpen and, and increase as Jesus arrives to deal with sin. The picture becomes clearer as history progresses and God the Son comes to deal with sin. Jesus is the one who deals with evil that tyrannizes this world. For all those who put their trust in him, he deals with their evil on the cross. And for all those who refuse him, he promises to deal with their evil upon his return. When, as Revelation 19.15 puts it, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. In other words, what Habakkuk could not have fully known, and what God reveals progressively over the span of scripture is this glorious reality. The righteous who live by faith are made righteous by their faith in Christ. And this is why Paul quotes this verse, uh, Habakkuk 2 verse 4, he quotes this verse twice, with respect to the righteousness of Christ that God imputes to those who come to him by faith alone, with respect to the righteousness that we get by virtue of the gospel. He's quoting Habakkuk 2.4. And this is because, in an ultimate sense, Christ is the righteous one. Right When the second person of the Trinity took on human flesh, he stepped onto the scene as our representative. He stepped into chaos. He was a righteous man surrounded by evil. Far, far more righteous than Habakkuk surrounded by the evil of a fallen creation. And he came and obeyed the law for us. He came to be faithful where everyone else was unfaithful. And in that active obedience, he achieved a perfect righteousness for us. So friends, when we come by faith to Christ, we are united to him. And his righteousness becomes our righteousness. And our sin is imputed to him so that we receive life and he receives woe and judgment. And this faith, brothers and sisters, is a faith we are to live by. We never stop needing to walk by faith in Christ. It's an all-encompassing faith. It's a faith that God will deliver us from the evil in our own hearts by absorbing that evil and shame himself. It's a faith that despite what appears at first glance, the wicked will not prosper. And no evil will go unpunished. 
It's a faith that God will right all wrongs. And in the end, we will truly be convinced that the defeat of evil will be better than the prevention of it. That's not the story we would write. But we live by faith that in the end, we will be convinced that God has written a better story. That's the kind of faith we live by. So as we conclude, let me charge you with these three admonitions that we glean from Habakkuk. Charge number one, Christian, be brutally honest with your prayers. Right? You can take this cue from Habakkuk and others like him in the scriptures. Right? We, we, have, we have somehow got it into our minds that any prayer to God that's, that, that, that bespeaks um, difficulty with reconciling circumstances with his goodness is a sin, right? That, that, that if we even give a hint that we are confused by what he is allowing in our lives and his goodness, we, we've been convinced that we can't talk to God like that. But that's simply not true, right? Many of the Psalms are those kinds of prayers exactly, right? And so that means if you develop the habit of praying scripture, and you should, right? That is praying God's word back to him, using the prayers and language of scripture as your script to address God. If you develop that habit of praying scripture, you will find yourself praying holy complaints. So don't, don't fear praying brutally honest prayers, brothers and sisters. Did you know that the difference between a discontented, disobedient Christian and a faithful, obedient one is not the presence of complaining. That's not what divides those two, right? The difference between a disobedient, discontented Christian and an obedient, contented Christian is the difference of where the complaint is brought, right? So if you fall into difficult circumstance, don't allow it to compel you to turn your back on God and then complain to everyone else. Right? That, and that should be a question when people come to us with questions about why would God allow for this to happen? We should ask them, have you asked him that question? Ask him that question just like that. Right? So don't let your difficult circumstances compel you to turn your back on God and go complain to other people. Let it compel you to bring your complaints to God. You bring your complaints to God and then you leave them there because God can handle them. Right? He's the person that you're going to with your complaints because he's the person who actually has power to affect change. So be brutally honest with your prayers. Pastoral charge number two is to dwell on the attributes of God. Dwell on the attributes of God. Brothers and sisters, abandon all foolish thoughts that assume that dwelling on theology is somehow impractical. That is an appalling lie. You guys, to, to dwell on God, to go deeper and deeper into theological meditation, to wrestle and grapple with tough concepts regarding who God is and what God does, to the end of worshiping Him in awe and joy, that's what you are made for. Charles Spurgeon uh, once said this, he said, Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief, and in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself into the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. He says, I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. We learn this from Habakkuk. Habakkuk rested in God's providence because he knew God. He knew him to be trustworthy. Right, if the resolution to the problem of evil comes from resting in the unchanging character of God's infinite goodness, then, then we must get to know him. We must get to know who this God is. 
We must become familiar with this character. Only a God who is glorious and infinitely good and sovereign and deep and beautiful and majestic beyond comparison, only that kind of God is a strong enough foundation upon which to stand when the orderly life that we enjoy explodes into chaos. So when you take time to consider God, brothers and sisters, when you take time to dwell on his attributes, you are, invite, you are investing into your future. You are storing up rations to survive the treks through the wilderness that will come. You're preparing for suffering. Nothing could be more practical than theology. And if you're looking for a good place to start, let me recommend the book by one of our members and Lord willing future pastors, Matthew Barrett. The book's called None Greater, The Undomesticated Attributes of God. And that's what he does in the book. He invites you to just come and dwell on the attributes of God. So if you want to follow this pastoral charge, that's a good way to do it. Buy that book and read it. It's also a good way for you to get to know the teaching ministry of one of your uh, incumbent pastors. Pastoral charge number three is to live by faith. This goes to the believer and the non-believer alike. Christian, live by faith in Christ. Right? Believe that the woe and judgment you deserve has been taken by Christ. Believe that the righteousness, that his righteousness has been imputed to you. Believe that in Christ the Father considers you righteous. And believe that in Christ the Father isn't merely pretending, but that that righteous really is yours. Because you are in the righteous one. And it is a righteousness that you are living in. So live in that righteousness. Live in the righteousness that Christ has given to you by faith. Live by faith in this faithful God who will bring everything to rights. Believe that no evil will go unanswered. Believe that the sovereign God who rules and reigns and governs all things has a better grasp on justice than you do. Did you know that? You can believe that he has a better grasp on justice than you do. And believe, believe, believe that injustice will not have the final word. No evil will be let off the hook. The wickedness that troubles you that which has been committed against you or against others, that troubles you, that you're looking at, that you're watching in the world, that wickedness will be accounted for in the end. It will all receive the just, eternal wrath of a holy God, which means that you do not take vengeance into your own hands. Right? Even, even those who are transformed from your enemies into your friends, the most wicked people, who are transformed by grace into saints, those people are not thereby let off the hook for their evil. Their evil, like every other evil, receives the wrath of God, the full wrath of God. It's just that their evil receives that wrath in Christ, just like yours, Christian. So rest assured, the God you worship is trustworthy. Justice will have the last word, and it will be administered perfectly by the Lord, which means we ought never try to take it into our own hands. Only one being has the throne rights to say, vengeance is mine, and that is the triune Lord of history. The God who sovereignly rules over heaven and earth is to you, Christian, a loving father. You can trust him. Oh, guys, wonder at the unflinching love and justice of your God. He, he is one you can trust continually, without reservation, forever and ever. So live by faith in Christ. And non-Christian, you too I charge to live by faith in Christ. You might find yourself today frustrated by the persistent evil that tyrannizes this world. Maybe you're frustrated by by what you are seeing in the news and on social media. You may find yourself raging against God for what happens to be, or for, for what appears to be his idleness. But beware, non-Christian. The justice that you clamor for is certainly coming. So that should be an encouragement. 
The justice you clamor for is certainly coming. It's coming like a wave to sweep over this evil world. But make no mistake, it will not stop at the person who is slightly more evil than you. You are not the standard, right? God is coming to judge all evil, even the evil that is in your own heart. Right? It's not wrong for you to be outraged by real injustice, by the real injustice that you see. The good news is that God has plans to administer justice in the face of that which outrages you. But the, His vision of evil is perfect, and He does not grade on a curve. So when He comes around to administer justice against evil in this world, you will find yourself swept away by the same wave of wrath that comes over the most vile people on this planet, unless, unless you come by faith alone to Christ alone. Understand that if you insist on keeping Christ at arm's length, this is what God is saying to you. He says to you, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come over, uh, will come upon your glory. Right? If you would stand on your own and keep Christ at an arm's length, that's what he says to you. But Christ stands ready to receive your shame on his behalf. He comes ready to receive your shame. For the joy that was set before him, says the author of Hebrews, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Christ stands ready to drink the cup of God's wrath so that you don't have to. So come to him by faith. And all your evil will be dealt with in Christ. Christ will drink the cup of God's wrath against you to the dregs. And he will give you his righteousness if you come to him by faith. So don't delay, non-believer. Don't delay. Come to Christ today. He invites you to himself. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for your sovereignty. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are a better Lord over heaven and earth than we would be. And we confess our doubts and your perfect wisdom. We believe, Lord, help our unbelief. Administer your word appropriately now to build up your church, Lord Jesus. We pray all of these things in your name for your triune glory and our good. Amen. Emmaus, may our triune God bless you and keep you in perfect peace this week as you continue to live by faith in him. May you entrust yourself and your future and your world to his sovereign care, believing that he will exercise his rule with perfect justice for his glory and your good. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Love you, Emmaus. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.